Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host, and I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege to open the Word of God again today and learn and apply in our life. We are going to talk today about the cost of rest. We dealt with some other topics, the roots of restlessness, restless and rebellious, living in the 24-7 society. If you like to know more about all these topics and uh, learn on your own time, I'll invite you to contact us and we'll be very happy to share with you a very good book entitled Steps to Christ, which will feature quite uh, a bit on these topics which we are approaching. But I would like to welcome our panel for today, and I'll start with Joe. Joe, good to have you with us. It's great to be here um, with the panel, Nick. Thank you for your welcome. And Will, thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick. It's great to share the word. Brenton, good to have you with us also. Thank you, Nick. Um, This is going to be a most interesting topic to discuss. And Len, thank you for joining the panel today. You're welcome and hello, listeners. We have Helen, which is our facilitator for today. Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the privilege of me sharing this with the rest of the panel. It's a delight to be here. Thank you, Nick. Helen, I would like to just uh, pass it uh, to you right now and please take us through to this wonderful study today. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay, this week's study focuses on one of the saddest chapters of the life of David. And a lot of people, most people have heard about David the psalmist. He was also the king of Israel and he was known as a man after God's own heart and found out through his life the true cost of God's rest. But just before we turn to this story into Samuel, I'd ask Len, would you take us through in prayer, please? Our dear and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your graciousness toward us because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as did the patriarch David. Pray today as we share from your word that people who are suffering under the uh, fact that they've got sin in their lives might realise that you are a loving and also forgiving God. May this broadcast today give many people hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Len. Okay, we mentioned that the title of our study today is The Cost of Rest. And in thinking of that, I thought, does this mean we have to go somewhere and pay some money um, so we can sleep? But I'm going to ask the panel, each one, if you could give just a brief thought on what you think the cost of rest is. Then, thank you. They say that there's no such thing as a free lunch. It costs somebody something. And I believe that when we have rest, there is a cost attached, maybe not to ourselves, but to somebody else. And, of course, we'll be talking about sin and the fact that we can be relieved of the pressure of sin, and that relief comes from our gracious Father in heaven. Thank you, Len. Will? If the departure from the will of God, or sin, 
dumps us into a condition that the Bible calls there is no rest for the wicked, then surely the return to rest and security in the Lord has a cost. While Jesus paid the cost of our sin, the temporal results of our evil choices will stay with us, even though we have been cleared of our failure. Can I use the example of an alcoholic? An alcoholic returning home may have confessed to his wife that if she takes him back, he will behave himself. She might pardon his unfortunate choices and accept him into the home again, but that still doesn't release him personally from the withdrawal symptoms, the night sweats, and the nagging cravings. In a way, even though heaven forgives you, you still pay for the lingering effects and scars of your sins. So the cost of rest, there is a cost that Jesus has paid to give us rest, but there's a cost for us as well to obtain that rest. Well, I think that really summarized it very, very well. Thank you, Will. Does anybody else want to make a comment? Yes, Joe. Helen, the cost of rest, uh, whatever it is, It's far cheaper than the cost of restlessness. Amen. Mm. Good comment. Grenton. Just quickly, I would uh, agree with the comments that the panel has made, that the true rest is found in Christ. However, we live in a society where rest is being sought elsewhere. And it's interesting that you can go to airport lounges and find a room that you can pay money in where you can relax. Uh, We have um, programs for... um, meditation and all sorts of things being offered today. It's rather interesting, Helen. Uh, I was reading some time ago, Johnny Depp, the actor, uh, they were asking him about money. At the time, he was estimated to be worth $400 million. I'm not sure after his latest divorce uh, thing that that's the case anymore. But it's interesting that uh, he said the reason that they have a lot of money and that they they can use that money to insulate themselves from the world. In other words, find rest. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give give you rest. People are looking for rest, but they're not willing to come to Christ to receive it, and therefore they're going to continue to spend the rest of their lives looking for something that's close at hand if they would only accept it. Yeah, thank you, Brenton. Great comments from you all. When I thought about this cost of rest, I looked at it a slightly different way, you know, from the worldly point of view, that we give up. Our rest sometimes is becomes almost um, too expensive because we are guilt-ridden and we don't come to Christ, and that takes away our rest. That's a very big cost to pay against resting, especially resting in the Lord. Okay, we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to look at David's story, and his story is found in 2 Samuel 11. We're going to start with verses 1 to 5, and I'm going to ask Brenton if you could you could take us through this brief story of 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5 on David, the start of his downfall. Yes. Let me read the verses because I think the the power is in the word. So let's have a look at it. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. A number of things stand out in this story. Number one, Helen, he should have been out leading the troops in battle. Uh, he sent Joab. You really need to read chapter 10 before it to get the sense of the battle was half over. He had, uh, David personally had led the troops against the Syrians and destroyed them. But now he had returned to Jerusalem, and instead of going out again and leading the troops to finish off the job by destroying Rabbi, he sent Joab. So here he is, time on his hands, and um, he sees this woman bathing. Where the, the stoplights should have gone up for him, all the red lights should have been when he made inquiries and was told that, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right then and there, the, all the red lights should have come on. She's a married woman, and that should have been the end of the argument. But you see, he fell for what uh, James talks about in James one fourteen and 15, when he talks about how temptation comes. Temptation comes, we dally with it, we play with it instead of putting it aside, and eventually it leads to sin. So a very brief summary is that it seems to me there's a certain degree of hubris. I know that's a term that perhaps we don't use a lot today, but it's a term that would indicate to me that David at this stage, his relationship with the Lord was not as good as it should have been. And it seems as though he felt that he could do whatever he liked with impunity, even to taking someone else's wife and sleeping with her. And um, this this is a truly horrid story, and I believe it's in the Bible for a purpose. But... Um, the bottom line is that when he first saw the woman, he should have returned to downstairs, I believe, and uh, left the situation of that. So he literally sinned deliberately, didn't he? He did. He did. Yeah. There was there was no sort of, if this was a deliberate sin. Len, thank you for that, Brenton. Len. David was the king. David was to be the keeper of morals and the moral leader yes. in the kingdom. And I think his heart overtook his head in this particular instance, which is the way with sin, which makes the whole thing even more severe because David, in his position as king, to be the example to the rest of the uh, kingdom, uh, had gone wrong. And, you know, there's a verse in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 8, which I'd like to say, is God speaking? It says, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. So anybody who's in a leadership position, even us as a panel, because we are sharing the word of God with a vast number of people, it's very important that we in our lives are morally pure. Yes. Because if we do something that's wrong, 
people can point their finger at us and say, well, you preach one thing and you practice another. That's not good enough. And so David was doubly wrong, if you like, and we know this isn't the end of the matter because he tried to cover this up, as we'll come to a little later. But it's important for anybody in leadership to be an example. Police, teachers, ministers, anybody who teaches the word of God needs to practice what they preach. Very good comment, Len. Thank you. Yes, Nick. I just want to bring it from a different angle here. Just keep in mind right now that David, it's established in his um, position, being the leader, you know, the king of Israel. But he is surrounded by many nations, many kings with different customs and with different uh, culture. And that can easily creep in and in David, David's life. The reason I'm saying that I want to look from a different angle is that we all, as Christians, how easy it is to fall and to miss out on some very important things and standards in our life because of the influence which surrounds us. Now, for you mentioned there that he had all the power to do this. this. Nobody will oppose him. Barsheba was not in a position necessarily to oppose him at that time, because what the king asked would be done, because that was the custom with many other kings and the, the surrounding nations. The only difference here is that this man, David, we are talking about, he was the one who God called him, man after my own heart. This man, God looked after him so amazingly when he was running away for his life, when he was doing all those things, and we know the history of David. But what's impressing in his story here, that he lost focus, and I think Brenton mentioned that. He lost focus on the living God, the one who took care of him in all aspects of life. When he said to his friends, when they they ask him to kill Saul because he fall into his hands. And he said, how can I touch the servant of the Lord? If he would have remembered now all those things, he would not fall into this temptation, I believe. Yes, thank you, Nick. Um, Brenton. Just quickly, Helen, um, um, I believe that, uh, that one of, <laughs> amongst the many things that he did wrong here, not just the adultery, I believe another very important fact that Len touched on is that he lost his moral authority. He lost his moral authority in his own home and he lost his moral authority as far as the people of Israel were concerned. The other interesting point is the, the comment that I read from the word is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, was possibly made by none other than Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel happened to be Bathsheba's grandfather, and we come across him later in the book of Samuel. I don't think we're going to be touching on him in this series of lessons, uh, but it's it's rather interesting to, to um, recognise that whoever told him who this woman was was saying, David, be careful. But as we have just stated earlier on, he didn't. He just sailed right on. It, I really do think 
that his relationship with the Lord at this time was not as strong as it had been. Okay, thank you for all those comments. I I looked at this and I thought this is very much what Psalm 1 counsels us against. There are three steps in Psalm Psalm chapter 1 that to me resemble the steps going downwards into sin. And, you know, you might recall that it says thou shalt not walk in the way. Thou shalt not sit with them. And here we see David. Number one, the devil works with idle hands. He chose not to go with his army. Number two, he walked on the balcony and in the way of sinners, he took on the lust side of it. And number three, he didn't just sit with the sinners. He committed a moral lapse. And and that was a step. So, you know, had he gone out with the, the army, Probably none of this would have happened. But, Joe, I know that um, Nick mentioned about Bathsheba, but would you like to just give us a little bit more about her? Why why was it that she would have known it was um, wrong to commit adultery, but she did refuse the king's request? What was the result of it as well? Helen, it's, uh, it's very um, – sin is far more complex and nuanced than we can understand or explain or even excuse, We you know. So why? Why did Bathsheba go along with this? It is a mystery, and it could be a mystery of reciprocal physical attraction, the fascination with what was forbidden for both of them. Perhaps it was loneliness, you know, people being her husband being away in battle, and perhaps she succumbed to that. Was she afraid to refuse the king? Well, that's a good question. Was she intimidated by the power imbalance? Maybe she didn't want to refuse used him being the king as an excuse to be compliant with his desires. So, you know, and from the context, it doesn't indicate that she was forced. You know, I think she was willingly compliant and um, complicit in this relationship. What was the outcome? Well, we know that in verse 5 it says that she became pregnant. And so this is how the story unfolds. So, yeah, look, why did she? Nobody really knows. Only God knows her heart. But when we when we point the finger, we need to understand that, you know, it's been mentioned, you know, our moral authority and standards and morality and all that. Sometimes when people are overwhelmed by hormone-driven emotion, that all fades into the distance. And so we need to really keep close to our saviour to, to protect ourselves from from these, basically, this, these traps that Satan lays out for us. And poor David you know, he was just a victim. I mean, he made choices, but he was also a victim at the time too. That's an interesting way of looking at it, that he was a victim. Um, what would have happened, and Nick, maybe you're going to comment on this, I'm not sure, what would have happened if she disobeyed the king? Nick, would you like to comment? I was just thinking while uh, Joe's sharing this, and as I said a bit earlier, in the culture, I don't think so. Bathsheba had any choice when yeah. she was invited to go to the palace. I don't think so. She had any choice. What I believe she missed on Christian behavior, what she did before she was invited to go to the palace. And I have to say this. Sometime we can expose ourselves today and uh, be a stumble block or do whatever, uh, you know, because of our Christian behavior. I don't think so. Bathsheba should have that butt in exposed there that anybody should see her to have that butt and then attract attention to herself. That's my first uh, uh, impression that she should have, particularly knowing, you know, her husband is 
is out, you know, fighting with the enemies. That's, I will call Christian behavior. Because today I heard many people saying, I can do whatever I like. It's myself how I express. Yes, but you can impact through your behavior many people. And in this case, maybe what Joe was saying that David Fall was like a victim. I'm not sure how to put that one, but, you know, into this trap because Satan obviously was after David and after Bashem and after all the children of God. And if we are not careful with the things which surround us, it's not just about that person who fall into the temptation, but it's about that person who can have a misbehavior. Mm, well, thank you for that. Yes, um, Brenta. Just quickly, uh, Helen, I'm not going to enter into the uh, hows, whys and wherefores. I think Joe has summarized it very, very well. However, I would say this. I can think of another Bible character who was in a similar situation, faced with the same temptation, and his response was, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, we can talk about power imbalances and all the rest of it, and that is true. You can't deny there is a power imbalance. There was also a power imbalance with Joseph. Had he succumbed to his master's wife's blandishments, who knows, he may have eventually replaced his master in the household as head of the household, but he would not have been able to fulfill the role that God intended for him. I think really the bottom line with this one is Bathsheba should have said the same as what David did. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yeah, okay. And she would have known that uh, the king's word was a rule and um, if she went against it, he could have easily put her to death. However, yeah, it's interesting to see both sides there. Thank you. Thank you, panel. Right. Okay. Well, the plot starts to thicken as we go further into 2 Samuel 11. Could you share with us 6 to 27? When Bathsheba became pregnant because of David's uh, lustful adultery, the king tried to cover up his sin. He called Uriah, her husband, back from the fierceness of the battle and uh, to spend time with his wife. Um, you can see the reasoning here. If she was pregnant, then he could blame the pregnancy or he could he could attribute the pregnancy to the husband. But Uriah reveals a sterling character when he refuses to enter the house while his army was fighting the enemy. When David's initial plan doesn't work, he urges Joab, the captain of the king's army, to place Uriah, her husband, in the front line of the battle so that he would face certain death. We find here that David's lustful look ultimately leads to a lustful act, and uh, which leads again to deception and a plot to kill an innocent man. Interesting, isn't it, how one sin leads you down the path to another, especially if you're trying to cover up. We'll mention a cover-up, and I know that's quite true, and I suppose we've all tried to do a cover-up when we've been convicted that we've done wrong. But I was just listing the commandments that David actually broke in his actions with both Bathsheba and then trying to eliminate her husband, Uriah, who was one of the top soldiers in the army. First of all, he coveted, and that coveting was uh, driven by lust. Then he committed adultery. We've already covered that. He, by 
ordering that Uriah be put into the heat of the battle and then the rest of the soldiers withdrawn, he was actually lying because that was not a normal practice in battle. So this was false witness. And, of course, when that occurred, murder. Now, there are a whole pile of things, I think five different commandments that he broke. But, of course, in the book of James, it says, if you break even one, you might as well have broken them all because you stand convicted against the Lord. So this cover-up was really bad. It was worse than the initial thing, but it resulted from the initial thing, committing adultery with Bathsheba. That that's so so true. Okay, let's um let's move on. Let's see. Can we learn some lessons from what we've just shared so far? God had given so much to David, and yet David stooped so low. No matter who we are, what warning should we all take from this story? Joe, have you got a comment there? It would appear that initially, I think it's already kind of been alluded to. David slipped up with Bathsheba, but with the you know, the speed that this degenerated into multiple lies and plots, I wouldn't have thought possible of a man of God. Even the casualness of his attitude to say that, oh, well, you know, Joab, don't take it to heart. Um, you know, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. It had plummeted, absolutely plummeted. And it shows that when you fail to do your duty, and when you take time to indulge in pleasurable desires at the expense of what is doing, what, what doing rather than doing what is right, you become vulnerable to Satan's temptations. Now, when he was walking around on his veranda, looking across at the neighborhood, he had too much time on his hands, didn't he? And then, of course, I agree with Nick, you know, why was she bathing on the top of exposed Within the vicinity, I shot of the palace. You know, this was just asking for trouble, wasn't it? So I guess the devil finds um, finds work for idle hands. Um, that's a common expression. So, yeah, let's fill our time with good things so that the devil doesn't have opportunity to tempt us. Thank you, Joe. Nick? Yes, uh, just uh, on that, uh, I like to say this because uh, as I look back into my past, I have to confess that uh, even myself, uh, I was many times, uh, uh, you know, tempted and maybe like many other young men. When we live in an era with uh, miniskirts and uh, all those things, you know, which, um, how to say this? It's very difficult to judge in between whose fault is. But I would like to emphasize again that as Christians, we should be very careful and mindful of the signal we send out to people in various ways. I would like to just continue, Helen, if I may, and read a passage in the scripture in Mark chapter 14 and verse 38. It says this, keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I think this um, passage in the Bible is so relevant and important for us all, and particularly when you are um, feeling exposed. And uh, 
Joe mentioned about that and feelings and pleasure and other things. You know, probably there's nothing wrong for David to go out there and maybe just look at the surrounding, the nature, and maybe have a prayer on behalf of his people in the front line. But, uh, you know, temptation comes because we have an enemy. We have Satan who will do everything what he can to tempt us. Let's pray and give ourselves to God that we may not be tempted. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, he at- Satan attacks when we least expect it, doesn't he? Mm. So we, as soon as our guard is down and you know, he knows our weakness, he'll jump in. And so that text you quoted that Jesus said was most important. Brenton, David's axe would not stay concealed for long. What happened? Share with us. All right. Um, I'm reading from Numbers 32, verse 23, and it says, uh, and Moses is talking to the tribes that were to settle on the other side of Jordan. He was telling them to be faithful to the Lord, but he says this, but if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. I believe, Helen, that um, the period of time between his adultery with Bathsheba And obviously the birth of the child would be approximately nine months. Uh, When did uh, Nathan the prophet come to David? We don't know, but it's possible, according to some Bible commentators, that a period of possibly some 12 months has elapsed here. But what Numbers tells us is that regardless, your sin will ultimately find you out. I find that really interesting because there are many people today who think that they can get away with impunity with sinning and it won't find them out. Um, But surprisingly enough, one of the most interesting things about sin finding you out is that it often finds you out at the times when you least expect it. David would not have expected a visit from Nathan, so I'm not going to go there because that's further down, but he wouldn't have expected any of these things. Uh, And yet often when you sin and you think that you've covered it up and nobody knows about it, God brings it to your attention in some way that really gets your, um, gets your, not only gets your attention, but I think he does this to allow us to look at the enormity of what we've done and also hopefully to help us realize that ultimately all sin is against God. And um, this is, this is the situation with David here. Thank you, Brenton. I wish somebody would stop the clock. <laughs> it just flies. Okay, that was very good. Thank you. Lynn, um, Brenton has alluded to Nathan, and it was a bit of a, a time for David, like a wake-up call. Can you share with us about what happened? I think it's from 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 14. Yes, 2 Samuel 12. Oh, okay. I'd like to say this. There are two Ps involved with sin and one of them is painful and the other is pleasurable sin can be pleasurable for a moment but it can be painful and I think David was dealing with his guilty conscience thinking that he'd successfully covered up what had happened but God knew all about it and he sent the prophet Nathan to David And the interesting thing was Nathan didn't come straight out and say, you've sinned or something like that. 
he told a little story, and I'm going to read this from Second Samuel 12. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and had grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, I'm sure David, who was basically uh, the judge, I suppose, of the nation, the one responsible for the moral purity of the nation, would have been incensed at this story. This is a miscarriage of justice that the rich man who had plenty took just the one little lamb from the poor man. And then it says in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now comes the crunch line. Nathan pointed his bony finger at David and said, you are that man. Well, you can imagine the thoughts that went through David's mind. It would have been a locomotive of jumbled thoughts. I It's been revealed, and I am guilty. And uh, Nathan said some other things about God appointed you to be the king, and here you've done such a despicable thing. And then Nathan said, although the Lord will forgive you, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be trouble within your own household. And I'll come down to verse 13. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, I think he'd sinned against other people too. But he says, I have sinned. He admitted his sin. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. In other words, he's forgiven you. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So sin has its consequences. And I know I'm not speaking as one of the only people in the world who sinned because I realise everybody has sinned, but sin has its consequences. We may be forgiven but there will be things which will affect our lives and make us remember that we've done wrong that we'll have to deal with for a long time into the future. Thank you, Len. There is a cost of rest, and I believe, um, Brenton, you mentioned you think it was 12 months between the incident and between um, Nathan coming. 
I, I would be, feel fairly sure that David hadn't hardened his heart to the part, the point that he, he didn't have a conscience. And that would have cost him his rest anyway. Yes. Brenton, did you want to say something quickly? Yeah, just briefly. If you think about, um, as Len has so ably put it, sin has consequences. If sin didn't have consequences, number one, we would never learn from our mistakes. And um, David, I don't think, had any clear indication of the seismic um, effects his sin was going to have for the rest of his life. It wasn't just uh, there and then and the, the loss of this child. He did lose four sons. I'm not going to go through them, but if you do some study, you'll find that he did lose four sons. And um, it's very, very interesting that um, I think God allows us to recognize that he has forgiven us and we need to have that because if we don't have that sense of forgiveness, we aren't going to cling to him and realize our total dependence upon him. But in order for us to begin to understand sin in the way that he understands it, I think those consequences have to be there to remind us of what sin is actually all about. Mm, thank you, Brenton. And the cost of sin, you know, in today's world, you know, people think, okay, they can just go ahead and commit adultery and all will be well. But the cost on not only the people that are the perpetuators of sin, it has far-reaching effects, you know, yes. into family, children, what have you. Nick, you wanted to say something. Yes, I just want again to look at this, uh, the cost of rest. And as we describe this unfortunate event, situation with David and Bathsheba and Nathan coming to David. We see the hand of God into this. Even Nathan came and approached David and speaking his language, like to understand easily, talking about the sheep. And David was a shepherd and knew exactly how it is and tried to get his attention. Then Nathan, even though we may think that he pointed his finger to David and said, you are the one, I think Nathan was bringing to, to his attention, and even said, actually, we, we learned that in the passage we read, that Nathan said, hey, God for, uh, forgave you, but uh, these are the consequences. What I would like to say here, Helen and panel, I believe the cost of rest is to give your heart to God. That's the cost of rest. I believe David was already restless after that event. And he tried to do all things to cover up. He was not at peace with himself. But to have rest, you must give your heart to Jesus. That's why David said against God, I have sinned. That's why he said that first, because he is opening up, giving his heart to God. And I will invite anybody who's listening today, if you are going through some difficult time and have that wrestle with God, you need to give your heart to God to experience peace and rest. Thank you so much, Nick. That is so true. Um, Will, can you answer to us just a very brief question that went through my head? Why do you think that Nathan chose to tell a story rather than naming and shaming David immediately? 
as Nick has pointed out, he was a shepherd, and of course, uh, he would have understood the accusation. He learned the lesson pretty quickly. What stands out for me, Helen, is is that there are different ways of saying, uh, putting the blame on someone. Um, you can say, uh, you are the man. One can shout it. One can accuse and stick the finger right in the other person's face. Or one can express concern and care. I believe Nathan's words must have been laced with grace. And at that moment, David must have felt the pain that God must feel when one of his sons or daughters knowingly steps outside of his will. Something clicked in David's mind and uh, something tore his heart. Might I point out that people know when you are sincere and have a genuine interest in helping them and not just being arrogant, arrogantly uh, judgmental. You know, of Jesus, <clears throat> in this regard, it is said, um, he fearlessly denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, but tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. He wept over Jerusalem, the uh, the city that uh, he loved, um, that he refused, that had refused to love and love and accept him. Um, they rejected him, the Savior, and uh, that hurt Jesus' heart. And uh, while he always bore himself with divine dignity, Jesus bowed with the tenderest regard to every member of the family of God. And in many saw fallen souls whom he, it was his mission to save. I, I think that uh, we can correct each other in love it makes a big difference. And this is what Nathan tried to do. Mm-hmm. He actually knew, I believe, because God inspired him. He knew what to say. Joe, how did David actually respond? I think if we can look at 2 Samuel 12, 13. Yes, uh, when Nathan said to him, you are that man, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledged. By by speaking to him in this parable, it seemed that it bypassed his defences, his natural defences and self-delusion, wall of self-delusion, and it hit its mark. And he, at that moment, recognised and saw himself for what he was. There's some interest. There's an interesting paragraph from Petrarchs and Prophets. It says, The prophet's rebuke touched the heart of David. Conscience was aroused. His guilt appeared in all its enormity. His soul was bowed in penitence before God. With trembling lips he said, I have sinned against the Lord. All wrong done to others reaches back from the injured one to God. David had committed a grievous sin toward both Uriah and Bathsheba, and he keenly felt this, that infinitely greater was his sin against God. That is so interesting that he didn't actually say straight out, I sinned against Bathsheba or I sinned against um, Uriah. He went straight to the core, I sinned against God. Thank you for that. You know, during this time, David wrote Psalm 51, and he gave valuable insight into his character and offering hope for each one of us as well it's a beautiful psalm it's it's a heartfelt psalm and no matter how miserable guilt makes you feel or how terribly you've sinned you can pour out your heart to God and seek his forgiveness as David did David also wrote Psalm 32 to express the joy that he felt um, after he was forgiven so if you have a chance um, any one of our listeners out there please read Psalm 51 and then Psalm 32 
They're powerful indicators in his prayers that show David was genuine. Um, Len, I'm going to ask you, can you share, please, Psalm 51, 1 to 3? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. You know what I think is really beautiful there? David gives the reason why God should forgive him. It's not because he was repentant or anything like that. It says, according to your unfailing love and your great compassion. And if God gave us what we deserve, we would never be able to say something like that because God is forgiving and God is gracious is why he forgives us. Thank you, Len. What a great prayer for us to pray, isn't it? Uh, model prayer. Joe, would you share Psalm 51, 7, 8, and 10, please? It goes on, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here David is pleading with God. The cost of restlessness was too high. Too, it just cost too much. The pain, um, the pleasure was fleeting, but the pain lingered and lingered. And here he's pleading with the Lord to cleanse him because only God could clean him from the guilt that he was feeling. He felt that his bones had been crushed. Um, that God's very face had been blotted out from before him. And so he was struggling and striving, pleading with the Lord to remove this burden of sin off from his, um, from his conscience, from himself, from his soul. Thank you, Joe. It's interesting. It uses the phrase, um, purge me with hyssop. Yes. And I found that really interesting because hyssop was the, the very shrub that they used to get and put, dip in blood and put over the lintel or the doorway of, of their houses when the um, angel of death came in the times of their, um, just before their release from Egypt. So if there was blood on the lintel, they were covered. And I actually looked into this word hyssop. I was really stunned when I looked. It, um, the first description, it said, a small bushy aromatic plant of the mint family, bitter minty leaves of which I used in cooking and herbal medicine. So the, through the week, I actually went to go a bit further, and I was stunned at what hyssop actually does. Mind you, there are some side effects you have to be careful of. But when it says purge, hyssop um, has been made into oils and all sorts of things, and it can be used as a diuretic, and uh, and it, in other words, it helps flush the kidneys out, and it literally purges you. It's got so many properties. I was literally stunned by it. So that was quite applicable, what he was saying. He wanted to be clean completely inside and out. Here he was saying, purge me with hyssop, you know, put your blood over me, and I shall be also as white as snow. So, you know, he was going to be clean in and out. Let's move on. Nick, Psalm 51, 11 and 12, please. 
Helen, yeah, this is just continuing, you know, uh, after uh, David is pleading with God to give him a new heart. And he's continuing saying, do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. I think that was beautiful, you know, that he's, I mean, it's beautiful to hear David saying this. Obviously, he realized the complexity of his sin, but he knew that that only refuge or escape is to God. And he's pleading with God and God is merciful. Now, there were people doing other sins before him and after who are even maybe more terrible than that. But we need to ask God for forgiveness. And one thing is clear, that sin uh, desires death. And in this context, even though uh, King David was, you know, king of Israel, he was still under the same punishment. The one who committed adultery, they should be stoned to death. But we see the mercy of God here, and we also have this object lesson that if we are sincerely coming before God, and if if we are coming with that desire, please, God, don't cut yourself from me and your presence, then the rest of it, the healing process and all of other things, it will fall in place. Thank you, Nick. What I enjoyed and what I liked about part of those um, texts you read, he said, make me willing. Mm. Make me willing, Lord. If I'm not willing, make me willing. And sometimes, you know, when we're in the grip of sin, we don't feel like being willing to give it all up. Yeah. You know, that's a good part of the prayer. Lord, please make me willing. Even if I'm not willing, make me willing to come before you. Yes, um, Len. Some people say that the Holy Spirit wasn't given until New Testament times. Here's David saying, I've got the Holy Spirit now, please don't take it away. I believe it's the Holy Spirit who prompts our conscience when we do wrong. And so David acknowledged that the Holy Spirit was in him. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Very good point. Will, give us some good news. Psalm 51.17. After all this confession and repentance, the very good news, wonderful news comes in uh, Psalm 51.17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And then he says, you, God, will not despise a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. That's good news. God can give not only the turnaround, but he can give the forgiveness. Absolutely. Brenton, what does David want to do about his painful experience? Well, in verse 14, just uh, going back a couple of verses, it says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. 
you do not delight in burnt offerings, etc., etc. I believe what he's saying here is that when he really recognised that God had forgiven him, he was then in a position, even though he had transgressed, not only to Uriah, Bathsheba, God, the nation of Israel itself, he could now have a new spiritual experience. He could actually share with the nation of Israel, yes, I sinned, I did some terrible things, but God has forgiven me. He has now given me the freedom to share with you what a gracious and wonderful God we have. And I think that's, uh, that fits in perfectly with what Will was reading in verse 17. Thank you, Brenton. Um, Will, we've only got a couple of minutes to go, and I'd like you to summarise for us, um, if you don't mind. Could you just pull that together, please? Jesus loves to have us come to him just as we are, sinful, helpless, and dependent. Uh, we may come to him with all of our weakness, our folly, and our sinfulness, and we can fall at his feet in penitence. It is his glory to encircle us in the arms of his love and bind up our wounds to cleanse us from all impurity. David experienced the cleansing power of uh, Christ's forgiveness. His relationship with God was restored. His spirit was renewed. He once again entered a life of service for for Christ that he loved, the Christ that forgave him and cleansed him and transformed him. And this is our situation. No matter how much we have sinned, no matter how much we've rejected God, it's good news, Helen, panel and listener, to know that God, a comforting and understanding God, can forgive us our sins if we confess them in true repentance to him. Thank you, Will. That was a great summary. Just before we have prayer, let's remember that Christ longs for you to come to him just as you are. Christ has never, ever cast out or rejected anyone who has sincerely come seeking him. And his promises of forgiveness and restoration are as certain as his eternal throne. Brenton, just before you take prayer for us, would you please read again um, 1 John 1 9. Will's just quoted it. Would you do it for us, please, just before prayer? And then pray. Thanks. It says this. If we confess our sins, he, that's Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've got to take both sections of the um, quote of the text, Helen. It's not just enough to say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. If that's all there was to it, we would just go on sinning and sinning and sinning and being forgiven and being forgiven. The cost of um, what we're talking about today would not really dawn on us because it would, after a, a while, just become irrelevant. Basically, what it's saying here is God wants to forgive us, but he also wants to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The two have to go together. Brenton, would you pray for us, please? Certainly. Mm. Father in heaven, what can I say? We are all like David. We may not have committed adultery. We may not have done the sins that he had, but in your sight, Lord, we're all sinners. And you see us just as you saw David at that time. Lord, my prayer for us as a panel and for those who will be listening to this um, Bible study today is this. Lord, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, don't take away your Holy Spirit from us. 
but give us the joy of your salvation. May we experience repentance, forgiveness, peace, and may we share the joy of salvation with others today and into the future. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone, for uh, your input today on this uh, beautiful uh, topic uh, where we learned that um, the cost of rest is to give our heart to God, to Jesus Christ, and to be assured that he is in control of our life. I will invite you next time to join us again when we are going to talk about what that means, come to me. That's Jesus' invitation to come to him. As we are broadcasting today, you may have some uh, restlessness. Also because we are still in lockdown here in uh, South Australia. But trust in God. Put your faith in God and he will take you through. May God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Thank you.